0: The primary impediment that we have in our messaging, it's not that people think that our ideas are wrong, it's that they think our ideas are impossible.
1: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do, get commercial-free versions of every episode, and occasional members-only bonus content, visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of Left podcast with clips today from Start Making Sense from The Nation Magazine, Off Kilter, The Zero Hour, The Labored, The Laura Flanders Show, The Young Turks, and We the Podcast with Representative Keith Ellison. The
2: biggest surprise of the season is not that Donald Trump is so crazed, but that so many people have joined grassroots resistance groups. First, there were those women's marches all over the place the day after the inauguration. Something like... Five million people marched that day in hundreds of cities and towns. Nothing like that had ever happened before. And more recently, members of Congress have faced thousands of angry constituents at dozens of town hall meetings. So much is going on and so many groups are forming that it's hard to keep track. Later in this show, we'll focus on what seems to be the biggest of the new resistance groups, the one called Indivisible. But first, we turn to The Nation's Joshua Holland. He's put together a guide to the landscape of grassroots resistance for The Nation magazine. He's a writing fellow at The Nation Institute and host of Politics and Reality Radio. Joshua Holland, welcome back.
3: Hey, thanks for having me, John.
2: So for this project, how many groups did you start with and how many did you write about for The magazine?
3: Well, I started with a, a list of 75 groups. I narrowed it down for a piece for the nation.com, the online site. And I think I looked at 18 or 19 different groups. And, and we have a an updated version of that piece in the magazine. And we narrowed it down to, I think, eight or nine in that piece.
2: And we have time to do, I don't know, about six in, in this uh, segment. So let's start with... Uh what seems to be the biggest and most successful, Indivisible. We'll be speaking with one of the Indivisible people a little later in the podcast, but we need you to tell us the basics. What is Indivisible? What's their strategy?
3: Well, Indivisible is a really interesting project in that it started with a handful of former and current Hill staffers. And they first set out with kind of a modest goal, which was that they were going to publish a guide that would help people understand how best to communicate with their elected officials, with their representatives on Capitol Hill. But then it became something else, because what they saw, and I have to say, John, I, I I heard this theme again and again, talking to all of these different people who had started these new groups, is that they they started something, and then they were overwhelmed by the response to it. So they started out with this Publishing this just this basic guide, how to get in touch with your members of Congress. And immediately the Google Doc where they had hosted that crashed, and they started to get uh, uh, dozens and dozens of inquiries and people wanting to get more involved. So they added these indivisible groups, these local groups, and people came to them and said, I am going to organize something in my community and I need help. So what was started as kind of this guide to getting in touch with your members of Congress became a cluster of local grassroots groups. And um, I believe that they're up to over 5,000 of these groups nationwide. If I type in my zip code, I get, I think I've had six of them within 30 miles of, of wow. my place in the Hudson Valley in New York.
4: So wow.
3: it really has exploded. And um, I think it's, one of the things that's interesting and about indivisible is that they've taken some lessons from the Tea Party movement, and I, you know, I don't think that we want to compare these new efforts with the Tea Partiers for a whole host of reasons. But as far as just looking at strategy, the Tea Partiers realized that they didn't have the that Republicans in uh, in Washington did not have the power to set the agenda that they they realized early on that they could only react and to do so at a local level to turn out lots of people to get in contact with their representatives and This is a model that I think indivisible has adopted with zeal, and uh, we're seeing a, a lot of a lot of the same kind of town hall actions that we saw from the 2 parties in 2009, 2010, we're seeing right now.
2: You survey a lot of organizations that I knew nothing about. One has the wonderful name Run for Something. What is Run for Something?
3: Run for Something is an organization dedicated to encouraging and recruiting and assisting young people to run for local office. And it was started by some former Clinton staffers, these are political pros. They identified a gap in in the existing infrastructure in that it was very hard for young people who have not maybe had the some of the advantages of doing a White House internship or whatever to 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 get the training that they needed and, and, in some cases, financial support that they need to run for office. So they're encouraging people to do that.
2: Another group that you report on is called Knock Every Door. What are they?
3: So when, when I approach these people, I always ask them, so what is, the, what is the gap that you identified in, you know, the existing political infrastructure out there that you sought to fill? And the folks that knock every door, they realize that in a modern political campaign, in, in the traditional structure, it's very hard to get enough people to canvass to actually knock every door. They they want to go and and have face to face conversations in all districts, including uh, districts that aren't competitive. So their idea is that instead of doing A kind of traditional canvassing operation where a campaign hires people to train other people to do canvassing they are doing this in kind of a grassroots bottom-up way where people are they give people the tools to reach out to their neighbors and to get other people to reach out to their neighbors and they're basically Trying to knock on every door in America and have a conversation with their neighbors. They understand that face-to-face persuasion is more effective than political ads and, and what and what camp candidates say in their stump speeches. and so they, um, they're trying to like take the so-called 50-state strategy and up it to you know every single congressional district in the country, the 435 4- district strategy.
2: Swing left. Swing left made a lot of sense to me. Briefly, tell us about swing left.
3: Their idea is that they would get people who are living in safe congressional districts to identify the closest swing district and go there and and uh, canvass in that district. So this is kind of about the the inefficient distribution of Democrats. The idea is you have safe districts where you know it's there's an abundance of of volunteers and you have uh swing districts where it's a little harder to find people and the idea is to kind of flood the zone with people from from safe districts in in uh, nearby swing districts
2: Now, what about coordination? Is it really a good idea to have 75 or 80 different groups doing similar things? Shouldn't these people uh, work together? Shouldn't knock on every door, turn over their lists to the swing left people, and, and so on?
3: There is a fair amount of coordination going on among these groups. You know, a lot of this is, as I said, really just spontaneous. People furious about the election, figuring what can I do, and then doing something. And I would expect that, you know, like any group of startups, you would have failures. I mean, not all of these um, efforts are going to take off, but you only need a few to be successful to really change the picture.
2: Another question about the, the, the whole spectrum here. Can you tell us whether all of these organizations, or most of these organizations, are committed to moving the Democratic Party to the left in the bernie direction
3: well, that's an interesting question. Um, I think that most of the people that I spoke to would feel that that they identify with that faction of the party, but some of them are filling in are filling in gaps in the democratic uh, infrastructure that aren't Ideological in nature. So if you look at, for example, we talked about run for something. They're trying to get young people who are Democrats to run for local office. I don't believe that they're favoring, you know, one ideological perspective over another one. There's a, one of the groups that I profiled is a Project called Project 45. They're doing FOIA. They're using the Freedom of Information Act to dig, to dig info out of government agencies in the era of Trump. So they're probably not, you know, pigeonholable in, in an ideological category.
2: How many of these organizations actually have real traction in red America, or is this all pretty much in the, in the blue states?
3: Well, here's the thing. Um, there, there are some of these groups are focused in, in swing states, including reddish states, but a lot of them acknowledge that there is this this distributional problem between red and blue states and are seeking to even that playing field. So a group that didn't make it into the to the online piece is is one called Adopt a State. They're basically raising money in blue states and sending it to red states. So there is a recognition that the Democratic Party has A lot of work to do in red states to rebuild the bench, if you will. And uh, I think several of these groups are working on that.
5: On Wednesday, many of us marked a day without a woman through an international women's strike. So this week, Off Kilter has an episode without Jeremy Slevin. Don't worry, he'll be back next week. But I'm thrilled to kick off this week's episode with Michelle Chen. She's a contributing writer to The Nation and also co-host of Dissent Belabored podcast. Michelle, thanks so much for joining the show. Thank you. So you wrote a piece in in really covering the women's strike this week that you titled, This is What Feminism Really Looks Like. And I want to actually borrow a quote from one of the people that you feature in the piece. Um, a uh, a trans worker who uh, spoke at one of the strikes and, and recently launched a union spoke about the need for intersectional resistance instead of what you term establishment feminism. Um, and, and this, this woman, uh, said in, in a quote that I, I find too good not to use, boss feminism is denial. It's deception. It is self-interest over solidarity. What did she mean by that? And, and uh, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about, uh, the end of establishment feminism as we saw in this strike.
6: Um, yeah, well, um, first of all, I, I don't think uh, we've seen the end of establishment feminism, but I think that is um, what people are sort of trying to um, orient themselves against or at least, um, uh, you know, change their analysis to be more wary of that going forward. I think for a long time, um, the discourse around feminism um, has uh, revolved around this uh, image of um, you know feminism as it upholds a capitalist establishment, um, and I think what um, what Octavia said in that quote was um, emblematic of a kind of grassroots feminism that is sort of returning to the original working class roots of International uh, Working Women's Day, uh, which was about uh, labor and it was about uh, women um, and the dignity of labor and how those two go hand in hand. So. Uh, rather than having a kind of feminism that uh, supports, um, you know, an overall patriarchy um, that is propped up by capitalism, or capitalism that props up patriarchy, um, we're now seeing intersections of different marginalized communities uh, within the feminist movement um, that are more subversive, that are more willing to challenge the status quo
5: one of the intersections that was on display and and in droves at the women's strike this week was what you describe as the link between feminist success and racial justice help us understand what that looks like
6: um well i mean you see it on a lot of fronts uh, but i think that with the um with the last administration you you saw um a, an emerging kind of um willingness to broach issues of racial and cultural difference that perhaps were kept under the lid before, um, you know, with uh, the presidency of of Barack Obama. I I think a lot of people had hoped that that would have been a breakthrough on race, um, much the same way that uh, many establishment feminists had hoped that Hillary would have been a breakthrough um with uh, you know w- when everyone expected her election um uh, th- this past year um and and i think uh whether you know uh, the, the the first effort of course was was successful uh, and we got 8 years of a democratic presidency under obama um at least nominally um that's you know that was a success um the second effort was not successful for various reasons um many could say that those two Subsequent events are tied together, but um, you know whether or not there was a you know a, a success on the political front. I think that fundamentally people were left unsatisfied with the um, conversations that were happening in status quo politics, um, both under Obama around race and as well as um, under um, the uh, the debates. Uh, surrounding the first American presidency that people have been hoping for, the the first American female president that we've been hoping for. So um and I think that between those two, there was kind of a disillusionment with what establishment politics could do for working people, because um, over the past eight years, one of the continual through lines has been, regardless of whether we're focusing on feminism or uh, you know anti-racism, in that very standard liberal Washington conversation that's going on, there is an underlying uh, current of unrest, of poverty, um, and of, sort of economic pain that wasn't being addressed. Um, and I think that people got tired of you know, the limitations of the liberal discourse. Um, and I think that's ultimately why we couldn't have a redo of 2008. You know, um, we couldn't even have a redo of 2012. Um, I think people, you know, what what political capital had been gained in 2008, and that's not to discount what it really meant for a lot of people, um, especially in my generation. Um, I think a lot of that goodwill had been spent uh, by the time the eight years were up. And yes, there was a ton of energy around. Uh, people like Bernie Sanders um, but again we saw that even within liberalism that coalition was already starting to fray um, and people felt like what we often term identity politics had um, had come up short in terms of what it could do to unify people around issues facing everyday working people Seems to me it's just to me. <laughs>
4: Last Saturday, the Democratic Party leadership voted in a new head of the party to replace, well, the last permanent one was uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who made herself notorious during the primary campaign by pushing the um, debates to times when very few people would would be uh, likely to watch, doing that as a favor to the party's chosen pre-chosen candidate of the time, Hillary Clinton. Now, people say, first of all, let me say this, people say, let's not relitigate uh the primary of 2016 for the Democratic Party. Let's put that all behind us. You know what I say? I say, let's relitigate it. Let's keep relitigating it, not because it's important to look in the past for the sake of looking in the past, but because we should not be embarrassed to admit a couple things. We should deal with a couple things straightforwardly. Number one, there is an ideological split in the Democratic Party between its left wing and its centrist corporate funded wing. And that ideological split reflects itself in two different ways. It reflects itself in different Beliefs about policy, uh, and it reflects itself in different attitudes towards how party, the party itself, and its campaigns should be managed. There is a difference of opinion. It is not wrong to highlight differences of opinion. Calling them relitigating the past is a way of trying to shame people into not talking about their differences. I think this party needs to talk about its differences because I think it's a party divided. And I think the Democratic Party establishment, which prevailed once again and got its choice of a leader uh, last weekend, has got to own up to a record of spectacular failure. And I think until it does, the party will continue to fail. Now we don't know yet. Uh, and as you know i tend to be a skeptic a bit of a skeptic about russia's role in all of this but we do know this russia did not caused the Democratic Party to lose two-thirds of state governorships. Russia did not cause the Democratic Party to lose most state legislators. Russia has not caused the Democratic Party to come to historic lows unseen in modern times, perhaps in a century in terms of its overall possession of elected offices. This is a systemic failure from top to bottom. Until this party learns to deal with this failure, it will continue to fail. Now, my belief... Uh, is that the party needs to move left because if you look both as better policy and because if you look at the polling, many so-called left ideas are actually embraced by a majority of Republican as well as Democratic voters. So I think on politics and on policy, the the party needs to move left. I think on process, it also needs to move left in the sense that I think it needs to solicit small donations from many people as Keith Ellison was proposing to do. Keith being unsuccessful in uh, winning the leadership uh, now, it's great that the party is talking about coming together and that uh, the victor in that race who was put up by uh, President Obama and his people and eventually succeeded, it's great that he's he and Ellison are, are doing a great show of allegiance and brotherhood and so on, but the fact is that the left is the future of the party. It is what the new generation wants. It's what the country needs. And th- th- sooner or later, this party, if it is to succeed and thrive and continue even continue to to exist in his present form is going to have to accept new leadership. Can I keep on moving?
7: In the months since Trump's election, one of the loudest debates has been whether the left should care about rural people or just focus on the cities and so-called blue states, whether the quote white working class needs to be central to any struggle or whether it deserves what it has gotten by voting for Trump. But the real world is a whole lot more complicated than these fam fisted debates, and there's a great piece at Working Class Perspectives from Patrick Dixon, a research analyst for the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University titled Playing Chicken, Discovering a Diverse Working Class in Trump Country, the piece reminds us that this country is actually not divided into red and blue states, white and non-white areas, and that the working class is a multi-ethnic group of people from around the world who come together to be exploited by American capitalism. Isn't that the American dream? The piece focuses on the poultry industry in the US, which is almost universally considered to be a miserable place to work. Poultry producers, Dixon notes, intentionally avoided unions by putting plants in rural areas with mild climates that also tended to be in union-unfriendly southern states. As of December 2016, he writes, 314 of the 426 commercial poultry slaughtering facilities in the United States were located in towns of less than 20,000 people, and another 21 are located in unincorporated townships. And those townships, along with the rest of the areas that make up the swaths of rural poverty in the country, are full of people of color, immigrants, and refugees. In the 10 U.S. counties with the lowest per capita income as of the 2010 census, whites constitute more than 61% of the population and only three, and whites are the minority in four of these counties, Dixon points out. These days, the poultry industry's workforce is less representative of Trump voters than Trump victims, though of course that too is a false dichotomy. Dixon writes, quote, at the same time, the workforce in poultry and meatpacking plants has shifted away from its African-American and Central American core in favor of international refugees. Around one third of the labor force today is foreign born, and even the North American Meat Institute has expressed concern that the Trump administration's attempted restrictions upon immigration from Muslim countries. The poultry business reveals some of the human faces behind the travel ban through its increased employment of Iraqis, Somalis, and Syrians." Displaced foreign workers don't disembark in New York City Harbor as they did 100 years ago. They arrive in rural resettlement centers in places like North Georgia and Central Virginia. For many of us, then, the rural working class has remained out of sight, out of mind, and our understanding of who lives in, quote, red states, who would be affected, for instance, if the left simply withdrew from them, has faltered. The status quo before Trump's election was already bad for the workers in these countries, workers of all races. To quote Dixon, many have objected to the travel ban with the assertion that it goes against their notions of what America represents. However, in the absence of a travel ban, would we be content with the status quo whereby immigrants and refugees are not welcomed, but merely accepted and consigned to the most difficult and unpleasant jobs? For generations of immigrants, this has been exactly what America represents. It's a hard line when you're an
8: important- it's hard times when well, you ain't sent for braces, feed the belly of the beast with they pitchforks, rich chores done by the people that get ignored. Ya se armó, ya se despertaron, it's a whole awakening. La alarma ya sonó hace rato los que quieren buscan, pero nos apodan como vagos. We're the same ones hustling on every level, ten los datos. Walk a mile in our shoes, abrochense los zapatos. I've been scoping y'all dudes. Y'all ain't been working like I do while y'all work ya. Yeah, it hurts ya. You claim I'm stealing jobs though. Peter Piper claimed he picked them, he just underpaid Pablo. But there ain't a paper trail when you living in the shadows. We America's ghost writers, the only borrowed it's a matter of time before the checks all come. but immigrants we
4: get the job
8: done one of my questions is about the relationship of this organizing to other types of organizing and you're both touching on it but I'd love to hear more there are a lot of socialists involved in what's happening this march there are also people involved in immigration rights movements the sanctuary movement how do these movements relate and I guess a crystallizing question given the history that we've lived with over the centuries as women is,
9: is this a coalition that can be split in the old ways? One of the points of light after the election is that we have come to see how we need each other now more than ever. You're and, confident about that? You know, I am. I feel like there is a level of movement coordination that we are seeing now that we have not seen in a long time. And Describe
8: it. So what does that look like to you, or where do you see that? So,
9: you know, there's a table called the Resistance Table, led by Demos, On, the National Domestic Workers Alliance, and Color of Change. And we come together in a war room that consists of, you know, close to 100 national organizations, And we it's less about coordinating one campaign and more talking about our overall goals for the movement ecosystem and at which times our different bases, different issues need to be in the forefront so that we stay connected and how we can, in a deeper way, relate to each other's issues. And and socialism is coming back into this conversation.
8: People are quoting the feminists of the early internationals, the socialist internationals, Mm -hmm. whether it's Clara Zetkin or Alexandra Kollontai, whomever. That language is coming back. Where do you see that in this whole development?
10: It became clear over the course of the last election that the main public figure who was standing in distinction to both the political establishment and sexist, misogynist, garbage candidates was Bernie Sanders, who identified as a socialist. Now, Bernie Sanders is not a perfect representation of the left in this country, um, but he brought a sort of representation of socialism to people that was really legible, um, that it's about redistribution, it's about control over your own life. And people thought, oh, well, socialism appears to be an alternative to this system that is working extremely badly for us. So vision moment. Um all of this sounds great, but
8: it is, and it is also still true that amongst the demands of the, of the action is full provisioning, which I read as kind of a reinforcement of the welfare net, of the, of the social safety net. I vision a future, a feminist international global future that is post-capitalist and has an actual society, doesn't need a net for the people that fall through. What's your vision? If, if all this goes according to plan and the, your, your, your best case scenario, how will the history of this moment be written, Jody?
9: I think one thing is that we um, move away from a place where people's economic anxiety is manipulated and turned into racialized anxiety. Um, I think that's a lot of what we saw in this last election. Um, people who had, you know, lost their jobs, fear of what would happen in the economy, and it became. It tells the story that. If you drain the swimming pool of economic opportunity, instead of letting black folks, native folks, Muslims also swim, we actually will drain the pool for all of us. And so I think it's about getting away from this idea that only some of us in a world are able to succeed, instead of really deeply, not just saying, but believing that until we're working for the well-being of all of us who do share this social space, as you said, that there's always going to be an ability to manipulate, to divide so that one person has all the water, but really that just leaves all the water sipping out of the pool.
8: And do women feminists have a special, you know, purchase on that argument, on that work?
10: Yes, actually um because one of the ways that the state has declined to provide for people and one of the ways that community has been degraded is by saying all of these things you have to do to take care of each other that's not a social problem that's your personal problem you in the household which is usually a woman you deal with that you do the child care you do the cooking you maintain everybody for the labor force you work in the labor force um and among the things that would be involved in full social provisioning are, of course, universal child care, universal affordable or free or public housing. All the things that we have privatized that are actually things that are common needs for every single person, many of them fit within the traditional domain of women, actually. And we're very well positioned to look at them and say, there's nothing natural about this. This doesn't feel good you know, and this is something that actually we can do together um, and we're going to show you what those things are and I think that this strike actually does that.
1: what if you could make the world a little bit better every time you used your cell phone? Well, it turns out you can thanks to Credo Mobile, because whenever you use a Credo product or service, you generate critical donations for progressive causes and vital activism work at no extra cost to you. They donate over $150,000 every month to progressive nonprofits, big names like Planned Parenthood and the ACLU, and some smaller ones doing critical work like Social Security Works and the Brennan Center for Justice. Credo truly does give you the power to make positive social change every day. Not to mention, they offer coverage on the nation's largest and most dependable 4G LTE network, and you can easily transfer over with your existing number. So if you want a better world for all of us, and a better way to stay connected to it, you want Credo Mobile. And right now, Credo has a special deal for our listeners. Go to credomobile.com slash bestoftheleft and get two smartphones free plus 50% off unlimited talk and text. Just go to credomobile.com com/ slash best of left. That's Credomobile.com/slash/best-of-the-left, or call 800-654-3182 and tell them Best of the Left sent you. It's time your phone company represented your values. That's Credo Mobile.
11: Now, the Democrats claim that they've got plans. I haven't seen them yet. still looking out for them. Uh, so uh, how are they going to uh, block uh, Neil Gorsuch? They've asked a couple of grazing questions here and there. Franken had a good question. The White House did. But overall, not much effect. How are they going to block any of Trump's proposals? Don't know. Hey, you got killed in all these elections. What are you going to do to change? That's a very important question. What are you going to do to change? Because I don't think they got it through the thick heads that they need to change. They lost the White House to the most unpopular person who has ever run for president. They lost the House. They lost the Senate. They lost the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court was theirs. They had a year to get somebody through. They were so wildly incompetent. You don't think I know the Republicans fought them? Of course they fought them. It's your job to fight back. And when you have the law and the Constitution on your side, you're supposed to win. Instead, they turn that advantage into historic electoral losses. They are a deeply incompetent party. They lost 69 out of 99 state legislatures. How much worse could their record be? So when Anderson Cooper asked Nancy Pelosi about those Democratic losses, let's see what her answer is.
12: Hillary Clinton. Did not win the election, but a respected leader. But we have we have leaders for all different aspects of it. The Democratic Party is a congressional party, and we have leaders in Congress. It is a gubernatorial party, and but, leaders.
4: But, but on the state level, it is a party which has suffered tremendous losses uh, in, in the last couple of years. It has, but d-
12: but uh, uh, we, we have a plan to address that. So there's
4: not one standard bearer for the for that you see as the leader of the Democratic. Well, they, party.
12: we're not in the presidential. Uh, we're not in a presidential time.
11: Okay, two different parts of that. One is, who is the Democratic leader? I actually don't care about that that much. Look, it has a very clear answer. Who is the single most popular politician in the country? Well the polling indicates that, it's Bernie Sanders. Now that's the same Bernie Sanders, the Democratic establishment did their best to torpedo. They're the ones who made sure that they all backed Hillary Clinton, they all uh, were against Bernie Sanders. Well, are you ever going to admit you were wrong, Nancy Pelosi? Democratic leadership, are any of you going to come out and say, our bad, now Bernie Sanders is at a 61% approval rating, Hillary Clinton's at a 35% approval rating, Trump's at a 37% approval rating. Oops, we should have backed Bernie Sanders. We should have backed a populist progressive agenda. You're never going to admit that. Because you're never gonna go in that direction, because you work for your donors. That's who you work for. Just say it, say it already, okay? So when they ask her who's the leader, the answer is obvious, the most popular guy is Bernie Sanders. But she doesn't give that answer. What's the first person she said? Hillary Clinton. Said, well, Hillary Clinton lost, but you know, Hillary Clinton. Are you kidding me? We're still even having a conversation about the name Hillary Clinton. And then there are congressional leaders. Who, you? Are you the leader? act like a leader. Where are you leading the Democratic Party? Nancy Pelosi, what is your vision for the Democratic Party? What is Chuck Schumer's vision for the Democratic Party? Does anybody know? I don't think they know. Bernie Sanders has a vision. So he he said it about a million times. We want universal health care. We want free education for kids. Why? We want money out of politics. Why do we want all these things? So that we can live the American dream, so that everyone has opportunity. But the Democrats, they don't like to talk about that. All they like to talk about is Russia, 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 because it's easy. That way they don't have to talk about economic issues. Secondly, he said, what's your plan? She says, well, we have one. What are you waiting on? Congresswoman Pelosi, what are you waiting on? What is this? Like a secret plan like Trump had? Oh, ISIS, Trump, believe me, when I get into office, my plan is going to be so fantastic, it's going to make your head spin, right? Where's your plan, Democrats? They don't have one. Their plan is to keep on taking donor money, keep on trying to use Bernie Sanders as a mascot, and do the same old tricks they've been doing forever, and keep on losing like they've been doing forever. Well, we don't accept that non-plan, and we're going to challenge you on it. Look, I think the right answer is Justice Democrats. That is a progressive populist wing of the Democratic Party. It was launched recently, it's already raised over a million dollars in only small donations. You're not allowed to take corporate money, you're not allowed to take PAC money, we're gonna have real people run for these seats. And the Democrats hate that, the establishment Democrats, oh please, real people running against us. We are mighty establishment politicians from Washington. Don't you know your role? Bow your head to our secret plans. We don't bow our head. We don't accept it. We will primary you because it is obvious you have no plan at all and an enormous track record of failure, and we're tired of it. That's not so the Democrats will lose. That's what their friends in the mainstream media talk about that all the time. Like, oh, my God, real progressives and real people, I guess they want the Democrats to lose. No, you're the ones who want Democrats to lose because all you've ever given them is losses. We want progressives to actually win and beat Republicans. You can't beat Republicans, so why don't you step aside? Because you don't actually have a secret plan. You want to see the Justice Democrats plan? It's right there, justicedemocrats.com. Go read the platform. Takes you 10 seconds to sign up. Be a part of the Justice Democrats. Participate any way you want. But whatever you do, don't rely on a non-existent secret plan by the Democratic establishment. Because it doesn't exist.
0: all, you know, there's like a pretty well-fed consultant class of folks who um, make a living telling politicians, telling the democratic establishment that, no, you can just sort of triangulate or white working class your way or whatever the new permutation on it is to victory. Um, So that's part of it. And then part of it is actually at a more genuine, uh, uglier level, I would say, which is that you know, some Democrats actually don't want to fight for 15, right? Right. It's not even that they reject a messaging that is rooted in what humans need as opposed to economic growth. They actually disagree with the policy prescription, right? Because they aren't actually that progressive and their money comes from the same sources as the Republicans. Um, So that's certainly some of it. But then I think that there's also just a lot of fear Mm -hmm. among the people who do share, at least to some extent, are more progressive policy prescriptions. I think it's terrifying. You know, we've had a shellacking and people revert to comfort. They revert to type, even though that makes absolutely no sense. You know, if people made sense, I wouldn't have a job, right? A lot of my work is like, here is why people are actually doing the opposite of what seems logical. Um, the interesting thing about, The pattern in the research projects that I've done, I would say, at least for the last three years, is that the primary impediment that we have in our messaging is not actually that people think our ideas are wrong. I'm not talking about the consultant class. I'm talking about sort of a more general public. It's not that people think that our ideas are wrong. It's that they think our ideas are impossible. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, they agree. We should have gun control. Huge numbers. But they're like, that's never going to happen. So I might as well get a gun myself since all the crazies will. And they believe that it would be better if we funded schools with a measure of equity and gave students that had been the longest ignored and sidelined more so they actually had the same opportunity. But since they think that's never going to happen, they need to hoard all their tax dollars so that they can go to private school, right? They do actually prefer our policies. It's not its not that that our main opposition is actually our opposition's ideas. It's cynicism.
4: You know, I think and that's... So, uh, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. Sure. Uh, finish your thought.
0: So a lot of the messaging challenge that we see actually is around a knee-jerk progressive tendency to lead with the problem, right? What I uh-huh. like to call, this is the Titanic. Would you like to buy a ticket? Or, you know, boy, if I got a problem for you, right? The climate is being destroyed. Right. Donate to this, right? There's a war on women. Come do that. And the thing is that most people, they don't want more problems. They got 99 right. problems and they don't want ARPs.
4: Right, right. And so, you know, unfortunately, we're we're going to have to... Uh, wrap up. But I guess then, so the big challenge is, uh, you know, just to sum it up and then we'll have like 20 seconds, but it sounds like the big challenge is is basically uh, how do we present our ideas in a way that says, and we can do this.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and not just, and we can do this, but actually, what I like to call messaging from inevitability that this is a matter not of if, but when. And I think that the sort of paragon that exemplifies this is marriage equality. When they stopped focusing in on people are very upset about this and it's an abrogation of rights and our rights, and we have a big opposition, and basically pivoted to love and relationships, but also we're getting married, people. That's what's happening. Right. This is the future. You can get on the bus or you can be left explaining to a grandchild why you had a problem. Right. We need to make it so that our things, we need to stop telling people we're the losing team because nobody wants to be on the losing team.
4: No, I I love the message of inevitability. I think that's got to work. It's inevitably going to work.
1: You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and motivated, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, tap into the tools of the resistance. We started today's show with a roundup of grassroots resistance groups that you can join. Just a reminder, if you want to see that list of groups, the article in The Nation is titled Your Guide to the Sprawling New Anti-Trump Resistance Movement. To add to that, today I'm going to talk about some of the tools that are helping make that resistance movement strong, efficient, and agile. Some of these tools have been around for a while, and others sprung up after the election, but all of them are helping more informed voices be heard more often. So unless you're driving, grab a pen and notepad, because here are a few of our favorite websites and apps that can help you get informed, contact your legislators, and make change fivecalls.org is about simplicity and speed. The site gives you everything you need to make up to five calls to elected officials in five minutes. The most urgent progressive issues that need the most attention are listed on the left side of the screen, and when you click the one you're interested in, you're instantly provided with a description of the issue, the name and phone number for the first elected official you need to call based on your zip code, and a call script. With fivecalls.org, you can be an active participant in the resistance before your lunch is done reheating the office microwave countable.us focuses on information. Countable was born out of the idea that it shouldn't be so hard to understand what your elected officials are up to, and it should be even easier to hold them accountable for their votes. The nonpartisan site provides clear, succinct summaries of upcoming and active legislation, allows you to directly tell your lawmakers how to vote on the issues, and makes it easy to follow up on how your lawmaker actually voted. They also streamline the process of contacting your lawmaker on every issue you read about, and allow for easy social sharing. You do have to create a login to take action on this site, but if you want to really know what's going on on the floor of Congress, it's worth it. If you work for a progressive organization, you may also want to check out their embeddable advocacy widget for your website. If you want to know when it's time to get in the streets, you can stay up to date on the latest direct actions happening near you with ResistanceCalendar.org. This is basically the unofficial online calendar of the resistance at the local level. Just search the keyword for an issue you care about or the city you live in and select the month and you'll see a pin board of related events. You can also view the results in chronological order and in full calendar view. If you've got an event you're planning, you can also easily submit it to the resistance calendar. Next, If you're feeling like you need a little more guidance to flex your activism muscle, you'll get the help you need at resistancemanual.org, a project by Stay Woke. If the site looks like a Wikipedia page, that's because it basically is. It's Wikipedia for activism. They're crowdsourcing resources, information, and tools to create a robust, curated, go to resource for the resistance. Don't worry, everything is reviewed and approved before it goes live. The site is full of updates on the latest Trump atrocities and how you can resist, but they also also have a section called Tools of Resistance that includes tips and resources on contacting elected officials, organizing, planning events, and even self-care tools. We've just begun to scratch the surface of what's out there, so if you want to find more tools, we recommend heading over to ActionAlliance.co, a collaboration of call-to-action websites and apps. It's a simple one-page website that's categorized and linked to a wide variety of online tools, including some of the ones we've talked about today, that are all helping the Stay on top of the issues, find the ones that are right for you and make them part of your resistance plan. The segment notes include all of the links to this information, as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com, so if keeping the resistance efficient, effective, and informed is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about tapping into the tools for the resistance via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too.
13: We need to fight like never before against the policies of blame, exclusion, and isolation. Divisive politics hurt us all and slow us down on the road to progress.
12: At least Hoke had
13: something to say about this.
12: I think it's really important for our brothers on the left to think about, this is not our fight to fight alone as women, that you guys need to stand up and call out your brothers when they are saying something that doesn't conform to our collective values. Um, They're they're gonna hear it differently from you. We get really tired of doing it ourselves and collectively is the way that we progress. Um, And that's true for for all of the issues that divide us. It's all of our responsibility together to confront this oppression and this bias.
13: I firmly believe that women, poor, middle class, rich, black, Latina, native, white, must lead us in the fight against the politics of exclusion and isolation in America to build a movement of women invested in the future of our country with renewed energy. I asked Ariana about this.
14: I think it's important for all women, for all people to be organizing. I just think that's going to be the biggest way, and by that it doesn't mean it has to look like on the ground. Organizing can look like all kinds of things. organizing your work community, um, connecting with your elected officials, um, your book club. I have tons of friends now that are like using their book clubs as their base to like call their legislator. <laughs> like I'm just seeing all kinds of stuff happen right now, um, and I want to continue encouraging it.
13: This election made clear that America is not a post-sexist society, even though we wish that it was. Nope. In America today, sexism is quite alive and well, unfortunately. Sure, women have seen huge gains in employment and education and economic autonomy since the 60s. But the reality is, is that two-thirds of all the people working for minimum wage today are women. And whether they're in low-wage jobs or sitting in a corporate boardroom, Women are still paid less than their male co-workers. I asked Ariana and Elise what a truly feminist society would look like.
10: I
14: think it would look like um, all genders being able to uh, to have the ability to to live out their lives in a way that is fulfilling, in a way that their basic necessities are taken care of and more, um, and in a way that allows them to experience joy and that can actually like move our communities in a way we're not just talking about profit, but we're talking about our well-being, like the well-being of all of us. Um, sounds so idealistic, but I think like that's to me that's what feminism means, right? Um, and that we're like acknowledging all the intersection and in our differences when we say woman, because that's varied um, in class and race and, and sexual orientation and and what what kind of how you even identify as a woman and so forth. Um, I think it's like using those differences in a way that not erasing them and saying equality but like acknowledging them and figuring out what it means to for each person to to have what they need to to succeed.
12: You know, I think the future is in part females for sure. I think the future is recognizing that um the people have a real role to play in leadership and that elected leaders across the board need to listen and keep their fingers on the pulse of where their constituents are, that we're not waiting to have things handed to us, that we are going to be out there um, demanding, you know, real change, structural change in the streets. And, you know, the you're speaking a bright light, 14,000 women have filed to run for office since the election at All the right. state and federal level. and And that's what the future looks like.
13: You may ask how you as an individual can make a difference. You can. You must, actually. There are people and organizations who've been fighting for you and your family for decades. Find the grassroots group that resonates with you. You know, the one that you just sort of click with. If you can't find one, start one. Join a church, synagogue, mosque that volunteers in the community at a homeless shelter, free clinic, or diaper bank. And understand that all of these important things—diaper banks, free clinics, free homeless shelters, and the rest— All depend upon political outcomes in elections. Understand that you not only have to be an activist, you have to be a voting citizen who's willing to vote your values. How do we get there? What should the movement look like? What would its vision be?
12: Call to action, I would say, is get involved. And get involved in two ways. Or three ways, actually. I'm going to go with three ways. One, support a woman running for office wherever you are be it at the local level, the state level, get involved in her race, ask, go there, ask how you can actually be helpful. Two, get involved with one of the groups that's really under fire right now. Do what you can. Show up to a rally, make a call to your congressperson, give a couple dollars if you can. And three, all of the groups that you're involved with now ask them to integrate a more substantive gender lens into their work right and and we do the same with race lens right we we are the movement that actually believes that our strength is our diversity and so when we interact with the groups that we've traditionally been been involved in whether it's an environmental group or a social justice group or a legal group like the ACLU Tell them as a member that you want a strong gender lens involved in everything.
13: There are many ways to continue to be involved in the feminist movement. Many women and allies around women's marches on Washington after Inauguration Day to protest Donald Trump and his anti-woman rhetoric. The organizers of the march and every person who shows up to support it are doing exactly what this country needs. Now more than ever, how could people join the work that is already being done to help bring about that movement and the feminist future?
14: So actually, I would really encourage folks, and this is what I've been telling my family, who most of my family is not like formally politically involved um, in any kind of way, um, is to to talk to each other and see all the many ways they've already been resisting, all the stuff that they've been put, all the injustices that they've been putting up with. Um, And I say that because I think that one of the things that we do as a movement is we act like resistance only looks one way. Um, and that doesn't mean we shouldn't organize and actually structurally think about power and shifting it. That's not what I'm saying. But I actually think if you ask people and encourage them to see the many ways they are already resisting, whether I think about my dad who works at a potato factory and has this, like, his, his team of folks is, like, Somali, Ch- uh, Chinese, and Mexican immigrants. And part of what he does is, like, when Ramadan happens, he has trained his team to collaborate with each other and they like they work with the folks who practice um who are muslims right who practice islam to make sure that they don't get in trouble for changing their schedule because of ramadan because the bosses aren't actually being inclusive as they should be to figure that out with them so instead the team figures it out themselves that's an incredible work of organizing that like nobody's telling my dad that that's what he's doing but he is and so I think if we actually start from letting people know that they're already resisting in a whole bunch of ways and now they're ready to do it even further, just remembering that. Because otherwise I think we're going to miss as a movement learning from folks that have been doing it, but maybe not in the ways that we expect or that we've been doing. Um, so that's one thing I would say. Um, and then from there, I would I think like many people have already said, I would say like, what are the organizations that are doing work that you can plug into? Um, how do you get involved? What are your fr- who are your friends that you know, like you? are already involved in an institution, whether it be an organization or a governmental institution that are doing good work, um, plug in with them and just start there and keep going. And I would say, don't be afraid to expand. There is no expert level. There is no like a good grade that you can get on being an activist. Like part of it is just starting and then you'll go from there.
1: We just heard clips today starting with Start Making Sense laying out a roundup of grassroots resistance groups. Off-Kilter discussed intersectional feminism taking aim at the capitalist establishment. The Zero Hour argued that we do, in fact, need to relitigate the 2016 primary and hash out the differences that divide the Democratic Party. Belabored explained why we can't just abandon red state America to their fate. The Laura Flanders Show discussed the emerging movement coordination and the growing awareness how much we all need each other. The Young Turks made a case for how Democrats could start winning again. The Zero Hour had a conversation about framing progressivism in the messaging of inevitability. Our activism for today was a list of tools you can use to get involved in the resistance. Listen to that again and take notes if you need to, or find our list by clicking on the activism segment in the show notes of this episode. And finally, we just heard Representative Keith Ellison host a discussion on We, the podcast about the women's movement in the aid of Trump. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now we'll hear from you.
15: Hey, Jay, it's Jack. Just wanted to respond to the, uh, your call about the American Health Care Act and uh, that not p- passing and everything. I think the Democrats and the left in general should push for Medicaid for all, because or Medicare for all, whatever it's called. Because now's the best time to do it because we know that this new Trump Care, whatever, you know, that wasn't going to get off the ground. And Obamacare is obviously just like this one-legged horse that just kind of needs to be put down. To use a terrible analogy. And I actually saw something interesting. This is okay. I think of the one politician. In the Democrats, you would not expect to be looking into single payer. Joe Manchin. I saw an article about Joe Manchin researching single payer healthcare instead. So I'm not really sure what that means, but to me, that at least gives you a, uh, you know, if the most conservative, horrible voting Democrat is looking into single payer, then, you know, you best believe that the rest of them can get behind it. And uh, I think now's the time. Anyway, take care. Next slide. Hello, Jay.
16: This is V from Central New York. I wanted to call in and give a update, but also to say that uh, you are doing amazing work. I have really enjoyed the last 10 or so episodes. Of course, uh, being able to listen to them helps a little bit, but uh, keep up the good work. A couple of weeks ago, I called and reported that I had had instances in my local community after Donald Trump was elected of being called um, a nigger and other racial slurs. And while the hostility has not yet ended completely, I would like you and your listeners to know, and I think many of them probably will agree with this and have noted this, Uh, themselves, but among the conservative elements of this community, including many of the most poor people, poorest people around me, they seem a little disillusioned by what has been going on in Washington with Mr. Trump, with the Republicans, and with the conservatives. Many of them, I am finding out firsthand from speaking to them. Did not understand completely the benefits they had received from the government, whether it was federal, local, or state. And they are coming into what I could only describe uh, as a crisis of consciousness, where they are looking, it seems, at the future and saying that they don't know if Mr. Trump or the Republicans are going to be able to make better the future. And this to me was shocking. And I think a couple of episodes ago, you mentioned at the end of your commentary that we should be reaching out to conservatives far more than we are. And I have been doing this for years, uh, really something that I take up from Dr. King, but we, as people on the left, I consider myself a bit more radical than the left, but we have to, I think, reset our priorities when it comes to talking to conservatives, to researching conservative books, and not becoming emotionally attached to rejecting them, learn from them. Learn how to speak and communicate the language of conservatism while deconstructing it altogether with facts. But not only just facts, with the rhetoric which many of us actually have within us, being artistic, uh, that would actually inspire people towards a collective vision that we all hold near and dear. We are actually presented with a great opportunity to do this. Young people, who champion themselves as conservatives, I'm talking about people in their 20s, are even facing a crisis. And they are starting to look outside of those conservative avenues. So we must, over the next year, year and a half, put together a fundamental toolkit for ourselves, whether it is music, whether it is audiovisual, whether it is just audio. To reach out to these people and stir them towards what they actually want and desire and need, but are fearful that if they let go of conservatism, they won't be able to get it. That is my update and my suggestion. Keep up the good work. I will talk to you and you listeners hopefully sometime in the future. Peace.
1: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or explanation of something so we all understand it better, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. So I have some thoughts to share with you today, definitely related to today's episode. I want to talk more about the progressive movement as a whole and the directions I think it should go. And I, I want to tell you about an article, and I'm going to quote from it at length, but the, the major questions I'm looking to answer were the ones brought up a lot in today's episode. Should we try to take power back from right-wing Republicans or right-wing Democrats? The answer to that, I think, is both. Uh, and, and then the less obvious one, should we focus on identity or economics. Again, I, you know, brought up in today's episode and many, many other places seems to be at the heart of the debate of the progressive movement right now. So I definitely have some thoughts on these. Spoiler, again, the answer is both. Uh, So this article I want to tell you about is, it's from Vox. It's called Richard Rorty's Prescient Warning for the American Left. This liberal philosopher predicted Trump's rise in 1988, and he has another warning for the left. And so, this article is talking about this quote that came, you know, resurfaced. Richard Rorty's quote from 1988 resurfaced, and I'm just going to read it to you because it becomes obvious immediately why it's important. So, the Vox article begins To read the viral passage is to recognize immediately why it has caught fire. Quoting. Members of labor unions and unorganized, unskilled workers will sooner or later realize that their government is not even trying to prevent wages from sinking or to prevent jobs from being exported. Around the same time, they will realize that suburban white collar workers, themselves desperately afraid of being downsized, are not going to let themselves be taxed to provide social benefits for anyone else. At that point, something will crack the non-suburban electorate will decide that the system has failed and start looking for a strong man to vote for someone willing to assure them that once he is elected the smug bureaucrats tricky lawyers overpriced bond salesmen and postmodernist professors will no longer be calling the shots so he said that in 1988 we are obviously living his prediction as we speak and so the Vox article goes on to sort of explain, all right, so this guy sounds like he was on to something. What was he talking about? So he breaks down the progressive movement into two categories, more or less, uh, which is overly simplistic, but it kind of is okay to demonstrate his point. And so he begins talking about the reformist left. And he says that the reformist left was in power you know, on the left for the first half of the 1900s, early, you know, 1900 through, like, 1964, and he says that the reformist left worked within the system and got things done. It accepted, as Rorty put it, that the inequities of American society had to be, quote, corrected by using the institutions of constitutional democracy, unquote, And that meant acquiring power, taking control of institutions, and persuading people with whom you disagree. It was not enough to speak truth to power. Elections had to be won and coalitions forged if you wanted to get things done. Economic justice was considered a precursor to social justice. If the system could be made to work for everyone, if you could lift more people out of poverty, sociocultural progress would naturally follow. Or at least that was the idea. So yes, he he makes the perfectly reasonable point that in the first half of the century the you know progressive economic progress was made, uh, you know we built the new deal and and a lot of the structures of our welfare state that we depend on. And so then he talks about the cultural left, and the cultural left is the version of the left that was so Disillusioned by the Vietnam War that they concluded that the system was too broken to work within and they sort of just became a cultural movement rather than a political one. And that's when you got a lot of people talking about how you you don't don't vote. It only encourages them. That and other similar catchphrases, you get the point. So at this point, the article argues that the left basically gave up on pragmatic reform in the 60s. And I disagree with this, and I think they miss a gigantic important point. Um, But first of all, I think Ralph Nader and Nader's raiders uh, from the 70s might have something to say uh, about the left's willingness to pragmatically try to reform laws and and make the country a better place. So clearly, that didn't all just end in the 60s. The real end of the progressive reform movement came with the Powell memo and the appointment of Lewis Powell to the Supreme Court in 72, and the Buckley v. Vallejo case in 76. Ralph Nader has, he's on the record saying, that case in that year is the time when his progressive reform movement hit a brick wall, because that's when corporations took over. That's a completely different conversation, but if you want to look up Powell Memo, Buckley V. Vallejo, and the history of the rise of corporate personhood, that's what you can do on your own time. Nonetheless, the broad argument of the article still holds up in the end. It goes on to talk about how the so-called cultural leftists turned then to identity politics in place of pragmatic reform, the article says in the 60s, I'm sure that's when it started, but I would say that it's that buckley v. case that really made it not so much that the left then turned to identity politics, but sort of that that's all they could make progress on because the corporations then basically took over the government. So the article continues. In many ways, this was a good thing. The economic determinism of the pre-60s left was embarrassingly myopic. Most of the gains made by the left in the early and mid-20th century went to white males. The situation of African Americans was deplored, as Rorty notes, continuing the quote, but not changed by this predominantly white left. Unquote. The plight of minorities and gay Americans and other oppressed groups was an afterthought. This was a moral failure the cultural left sought to correct. But then the article points out that multiculturalism structurally is harder to manage as a political movement and therefore has some downsides at the cost of very worthy goals. Continuing, The cultural left succeeded in making America a better, more civilized country. The problem, though, is that the progress came at a price. There is a dark side to the success story I have been telling about the post-60s cultural left, Rorty writes. During the same period in which socially accepted sadism diminished, economic inequality and economic insecurity have steadily increased. It's as if the American left could not handle more than one initiative at a time, as if it either had to ignore stigma in order to concentrate on money, or vice versa, Rorty is particularly hard on Presidents Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton, both of whom he accuses of retreating, quote, from any mention of redistribution, end quote, and of, quote, moving to a sterile vacuum called the center, unquote. The Democratic Party under this model has grown terrified of redistributionist economics, believing such talk would drive away the suburbanite vote. The result, he concludes, is that, quote, the choice between the major parties has come down to a choice between cynical lies and terrified silence. Unquote. The article continues Immediately after the now famous passage about a future strongman, Rorty offers yet another disturbing prophecy, quoting One thing that is very likely to happen is that the gains made in the past 40 years by black and brown Americans and by homosexuals will be wiped out jocular contempt for women will come back into fashion. The words nigger and kike will once again be heard in the workplace. All the sadism which the academic left has tried to make unacceptable to its students will come flooding back. All the resentment which badly educated Americans feel about having their manners dictated to them by college graduates will find an outlet. Unquote. So that's the last I'm going to read from that article. And so this guy accurately predicts the rise of someone like Trump and accurately predicts the attacks on all of the social justice progress of the past few decades. He lays out how progressives made a lot more progress on economic issues in the first half of the century than the second. And when the post-war era was eventually sort of met by Reaganomics, there was no real economic opposition on the left anymore. And we've been a sunk fish swimming sideways ever since. Neoliberalism light under Democrats and neoliberalism to the extreme under Republicans. So I completely understand the instinct in many to say that we made a wrong turn. We never should have begun to focus on identity because look where it got us. Let's focus Everything on economics and allow that to disproportionately help the most disaffected in a positive way is that's great It's it's a great populist message. It riles people up and it actually helps the people who we want to help anyways But if that's your conclusion, then you're missing the bigger point Beginning to focus on identity was never the problem. It was our seeming inability to do both That was the problem the answer should be obvious. We, we tried progressive economics for the first half of the century, and we built the modern welfare state that is totally critical to our country, but we also left a lot of people behind. So that theory didn't work. Focusing on economics does not naturally bring everyone with you. But then we focused on righting that wrong by embracing multiculturalism and putting it at the forefront of a cultural reform movement for the past 50 years, but managed at the same time to slip into massive inequality and corporate dominance at the same time. So the obvious answer is that we have to learn to do both, but the good news is that there's never been a better time, and more and more people have begun to get that all of this shit is connected when you integrate an intersectional perspective of oppression into your thoughts on neoliberal economics. Or if you talk about the effects of capitalism on the oppressions that people experience in their lives— Each issue only strengthens the other. There is no conflict here, no decision to be made about which is more important. There is only a clear and obvious path forward that the progressive movement needs to walk together, and that is to do both in solidarity. Keep the comments coming in. The number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks for listening, everyone. And just a quick reminder before I go about the mobile carrier that lets you make the world a little bit better every time you use your cell phone. Of course, Credo Mobile is the only progressive phone company. They give millions of dollars every year to nonprofits like Planned Parenthood and the ACLU. They've even been Planned Parenthood's largest corporate donor for years. Not to mention, of course, their coverage is dependable and you can keep your own number when you switch over. So go to Credo Mobile. Dot com slash best of the left or call 800-654-3182 and mention best of the left to get two smartphones for free plus 50% off unlimited talk and text. Now, thanks to all those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode—
15: to